When I was in about the third or fourth grade, I used to love to wear, and some of you will remember this, maybe the shoe is still being made today, I don't know, but it's a Stan Smith Adidas shoe. It was a white shoe with a little bit of green on the back, and it was my favorite shoe, and even though probably nobody else agreed with me, I thought I was the coolest kid in town with that shoe, with that shoe every time I would wear those. Well, I had a friend that would see, that, see me wearing those shoes, and he would always say, John, I wish, man, I just, I love those shoes. I wish that, that I could have a pair of shoes like that. Well, it's interesting. Last night, I called my dad, and I said, hey, I want to ask you a question. I said, when Joel and I were young, and we needed school clothes, or certainly shoes, because shoes can be expensive, I said, how did you and mom go about paying for that? How did you do that? He said, well, John, Back in those days, in the early 1970s, he said, I had just graduated from seminary, so we spent most of the money we had saved to go to seminary. And when we moved from Fort Worth to Tennessee to start pastoring, we didn't have, we didn't have any debt, thankfully, but he said, we didn't have any, very much money. I said, well, how much money did you make at your first church after seminary? He said, John, I made $1,000 a month. He said, I made $12,000 a year. And he said, so when you guys needed clothes or shoes, we didn't, it's not like it is for many people today. You just go out to the academy or wherever and buy your, you don't even think about it. He said, we had to save. And that might take a few months before we would get ready to be able to buy you a pair of shoes. Well, anyway, my friend, even though we didn't have much money at all, my friend, his family had even less money. And he would always, not always, but a lot of times he would come to our house we would play ball after school. And my mom had heard him say on one occasion, John, I really do like those shoes. I wish that I could have a pair of shoes like that. So after he left that day, my mom said to me, she said, John, you know what you ought to think about doing? She said, you ought to give him your shoes. She said, they're a really new pair. Y'all have the same size feet. And he said, she said to me, she said, I'm afraid if we save up to buy him some shoes, then we might buy the wrong size or something. She said, you ought to think about giving him your shoes and then your dad and I will save up for a few weeks or months, and then we'll buy you another pair of shoes. So I thought about it. I thought, well, Mom, my mom tell me to do this. And, and so, you know, I, I, I did. I said, okay, that's what I'll do. And she said, but there's only one condition to this deal. She said, you can never tell a living soul that you gave those shoes to him. Of course, now I'm telling all of you, right? So I guess I've, but I think the statute of limitations has run out on that, on that edict that she had given to me. She said, you can never tell anybody that you gave him those shoes. And I said, well, why not? What's the big deal? She said, Here's, it's a very big deal. She said, if you guys are at your school and you're out there at lunch and you're on the playground and you're playing ball and some other kid says to him, man, I like those shoes, and you pipe up and, and pipe in or speak up and say, well, hey, you know, I gave, I gave him those shoes. She said, here's what's going to do. It's going to embarrass him. You're going to look good for giving your shoes away, but you're going to embarrass him. She said, let me tell you something. Don't you ever tell anybody that you did that. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am, I understand. She said, I want to take this opportunity to teach you a lesson. And I want you to get this lesson in your mind. See, my dad preached at church, but my mom preached at home. And she said, I want you to get this lesson and never forget it. I was in the third, maybe fourth grade. I said, what is the lesson? She said, never make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad. Now, that is the sermon in the sentence. If you don't get anything else I'm about to say for the next 30 minutes, if you will get that, your time here will have been well spent. Look at that. I want, to just, I want you to see it with your eyes, and I want to read it and say it again. 
Never make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad. She said, John, that would be condescending. That would be demeaning. That would embarrass your friend. Don't you ever tell any of your other friends that you gave him those shoes. Well, that was in my mind. My mom had drilled that in me in the third or fourth grade. A couple of years later, our family left Tennessee. We moved to East Texas for my dad to pastor another church there. We were kind of getting established there. When I was in the seventh grade, I was in a history class, and we were learning about elections, campaigns, the democratic process, presidents, senators, governors, representatives, local mayors. I mean, we're learning about all this stuff. And so the time came where the teacher wanted to have an election in our class. And I don't mean for the whole seventh grade. I just mean for our little history class. And two of us somehow were chosen to run as president of the class, me and another guy. And so the teacher had said to us, now on a given day, you're both going to give your speech like they do at the convention, tell your platform, tell the students why they should vote for you, then the other one will give his speech, and at the end of that, we'll have an election and one of you will win and be the class president. Well, the day came. My friend gave his speech, here's why you should vote for me. I gave my speech, here's why you should vote for me. Here's why my policies are better than his policies. Well, we voted. And it was a tie, 13 to 13 on that day. It was a split chance, a split decision. And so the teacher said, sometimes this happens in elections, and you have to have a runoff. Now, normally with two people, you would, but anyway, in this case, you have, to have, you have to have a runoff. She said, here's what I want both of you presidential candidates to do. I want you to think about two or three minutes and think up another speech and try to persuade the class, those who didn't vote for you, why they should shift over and vote for you. So the other guy went first, and he gave his speech, and he's selling his bill of goods and telling why he should be the class president. I'm sitting there thinking to myself as I listen to this speech, thinking about what I'm going to say. This is impromptu. The first speech was prepared. This one was off the cuff. And a thought ran through my mind. There's one thing that I could say about my opponent that if I said that, no doubt in my mind I would win this election. I mean, I, I would win this election. It would be 25 to 1 when we vote again. In fact, if I say what I really want to say, he might even vote for me. It'd be 26 to 1. There's something I can say. Now, we were only in the seventh grade, so nobody had a lot of dirt on anybody. But I thought there's something I can say that would really put him down. I walk away with this election. Well, I was getting excited. I was getting fired up. I said, man, I'm going to get up there, and I'm going to persuade this class to vote for me. And about the time I was thinking that, my mom's statement came back to my mind. Never make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad. She took the ammunition out of my gun, and I couldn't use what I wanted to say. So he got finished. I went up there, and I gave a very unmotivated, uninspired speech, didn't really say anything. I said, you've already heard my platform. You just have to decide who you want. When you vote, they voted again. He won. I lost. When the class vote was over and the class ended, we walked out the door, and I can still remember thinking to myself, I don't know how happy he is to have won the election, but there's no way he's as happy as I am to have lost the election because I lost the election doing what my mother told me to do, to refuse to make myself look good by making somebody else look 
bad. And so today we're going to be thinking about that. Now, we're going to look at some scripture, but before we get into any of this, and I'm talking today about in our personal relationships, people we like, people we work with, maybe people we don't like, in our interactions with each other, why would we try sometimes to make ourselves look good by making uh, somebody else look bad? Why do we do that sometimes? And I think there's several reasons. First reason is obvious, it's insecurity. Many people are just insecure. They don't like who they are. They don't feel comfortable in their own skin. They don't like how they look. They don't, they, maybe when they were coming up and in, in they were kids, they weren't athletic or they weren't popular or whatever. And they, instead of working and through all that and, and getting beyond all that, they take that into their adult life and they have terrible self-esteem. And so in their mind, they think, well, if I can pull somebody down, then in the process... I can make myself look a little bit better. Sometimes it's not so much insecurity, it's just pride. It's ego. It's all about me, and I want to put my best possible foot forward, and I want people to think highly of me, even if they do that at the expense of what they think of somebody else. Sometimes it's jealousy. Maybe there's another person in your life. Maybe there's somebody you go to school with, and you're jealous of them. They're more popular. They're more athletic. They, they, they seem to be more successful. They make better grades, and you're just jealous of them, and you think, you know what? If I could say something negative about them, kind of pull them off the branch they're perched on, it would kind of lift me back up. And then sometimes, and this is the worst of all, it's just hatred. People just hate people. There's some people who hate other people, and they hate them so much that they set out to destroy their reputation or at least to put a pretty big dent in it, and they think, you know what? Once I say everything I want to say about them, when I tell you everything that he did or she did or they said, then they'll look bad. I'll look better. Now, the question is, how do we do this? We've all been tempted to do this. Maybe even today, you're thinking, man, I, I thought it was going to be a Mother's Day sermon on how to be a good mom. You're telling us a lesson that your mom told you in the third grade that helped you then, helped you in the seventh grade. I'm sure I've not always lived by this perfectly. I haven't done anything perfectly. But I have tried to live my life abiding by this truth and by this lesson. Don't make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad. Well, how do we do that? Well, if you have your Bible today, open it, please, to the Gospel of Luke. I want us to look at just two or three passages of Scripture today, and see in the Bible, when I had this thought in my mind, I knew God wanted me to talk about this today, and I thought, God, where in the Bible do we have some illustrations of people who tried to make themselves look good by making somebody else look bad, and Bible stories began to come to my mind. Now, in Luke chapter number 10, look in verse 38, familiar story to many of us. Luke 10, 38, and before I even read the story, I'll tell you the first way we do this, we criticize somebody else. We criticize another person. Now, it happened as they went that Jesus entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Now, Jesus has walked in this house. Here are these two ladies, Mary and Martha. Martha is so captivated by the presence of Jesus that she goes and 
and gets down on her knees right at where Jesus is sitting, and she looks up into his face, and she is asking him questions, and she's listening to him talk to her, and she's thinking, I'm in the presence of Jesus. I'm in the presence of the Son of God, and she's captivated by that. Martha's in the kitchen. She's preparing the meal, and she looks in there and sees Martha, or sees Mary, rather, talking to Jesus, and she's thinking, well, why isn't she working like I'm working? And so she goes in, and she's complaining about that, and she says, Lord, don't you see that she's not doing anything? Can't you tell she's not working as, as hard as I am? And then she said, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, tell her to get in here and help me. Now, how many of us know we're not supposed to tell Jesus what to do, Right? I mean, that's against the rules. He tells us what to do. But she was so busy criticizing Martha that now she starts telling Mary what to do. And sometimes we do that. We'll see what somebody else is doing, and we'll criticize that because maybe they're doing something different than we're doing. Maybe they're doing it differently than we would. We criticize them, pulling them down, trying to lift ourselves up. Now, turn a few pages to Luke chapter 18. Here's another example of somebody who did a similar thing. Here it wasn't so much criticism, but here's a person who began to compare himself to another person, and when he did that, he tried to pull the other person down. Luke 18, verse 10, Jesus is telling a story. This is a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee was a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. In Bible times, tax collectors were known for their dishonesty. They ripped people off regularly. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself. Now listen to this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And so this man in his prayer is saying, God, I thank you that I'm better than everybody else. I don't commit adultery. I don't cheat people. God, do you notice sometimes I don't even eat food during the day. I just fast. I, I pray. I tithe my income, all these things. Verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so this tax collector goes to God. You see, sometimes it's not that we try to pull other people down to others by what we say to them. We do it in our own minds, and we get to thinking, well, you know, when I compare myself to her, I'm really better. I compare myself to him. I'm better than, listen, you can always find somebody that you're doing better than. That's not, that's not hard to do. You just keep looking. You'll find somebody who's not doing as well as, as you're doing, and yet this man, as he's criticizing this other man, what is he doing? He's trying to build himself up by, poor, by pulling this other man down, and it's really bad. Have you noticed when we compare ourselves with other people, whether it's a, a spouse or whether it's a friend or whether it's a coworker or whether it's somebody you, maybe you know from a distance, have you noticed when it comes to the comparison game, we tend to compare our best qualities with their worst qualities? We're not comparing apples to apples. We're not comparing our best to their best or our worst to their worst. We're pulling our best qualities. That's what this man did. God, I thank you. I fast twice a week. I give my tithes. And then he's talking about this man who was, who was dishonest in his dealings. And so it's, it's really, uh, it's not a fair way that we do that. We're not as hard on ourselves 
as we are many times on other people. Now, turn a few pages to the right to John chapter 8. This is another very familiar story. And we have another example of somebody trying to make themselves, in this case, it's a group of people, make themselves look good by making somebody else look bad. It's the story of the lady who was caught in the act of adultery. And it's a tremendous story. And so the, the lady was caught in the act of adultery. These men who caught her, they brought her to Jesus. I've always wondered, where was the man? Why didn't they bring the man to Jesus? It takes two people to commit adultery. We don't know. Maybe the man was one of their friends. And yet, as they're condemning this lady, they didn't want to condemn their friends. So that's what I'm saying. When we start condemning and judging, we're seldom consistent. We kind of do it in an unfair way. But look in verse 4 of John 8. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote. He may have written the Ten Commandments. And as those men are looking at these other commandments, they're thinking, well, I haven't committed adultery, but I have been guilty. I have broken this one or that one, and now they're starting to feel bad. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to, him, to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so here's a lady who had committed adultery. The religious leaders caught her in the act, drug her to Jesus, and said, Here's what she's done, Jesus. What are you going to do about it? And Jesus forgave that lady. And so sometimes I'm saying, We try to build ourselves up by pulling others down through criticizing them, through comparing our best traits with their worst traits, and then by condemning them or judging them or throwing stones at them when they maybe have done something. Maybe we haven't done the same sin, but maybe we've done something worse or, you know, it's not the same, but maybe it's just as bad in another way. Now, what happens when you set out to do that? And the interesting thing about this, there may be people, and I would think there definitely are in this service today, and you're like, well, John, this is interesting because I think I, maybe I've been guilty of this. Maybe I've been doing this at school with my friends or in some other setting. I've been talking negatively about somebody else so that I can put my best foot forward and so that I can look good. Well, what happens when we do that? I want to mention two things that happen. First of all, when you try to make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad, God will defend the other person. Now, God won't necessarily defend their behavior if they've done something wrong, but God will defend the other person. Think about it in this. Martha criticized Mary. Jesus defended Mary. The Pharisee, he, he criticized certainly and compared himself with the tax collector. Jesus forgave the tax collector and saved him. The Pharisees condemned the woman caught in adultery Jesus forgave the lady, defended her, and restored her, and ended up getting against them. And so when you set out to 
criticize somebody. You need to understand this. God will come to that person's defense. You know, that's the whole idea of God being our defender. It's a tremendous teaching in Scripture in the book of Psalms. In other words, if somebody says something against you or does something against you, you have to remember this, that God is your defender. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to set the record straight. You don't have to tell your side of the story. Just sit back, zip it, be quiet, be patient. Give God time to be your defender. And we all feel very comfortable with God being our defender. Well, remember this. He's other people's defender too. And so if you set out to put a dent in somebody else's reputation, God will defend the other person. So you don't want to be working against God. And I'll tell you a second thing that will happen. If we do this, God will deal with us. He dealt with Martha. He dealt with this uh, Pharisee. And he dealt with uh, the Pharisees who brought the lady in. And so you don't, anytime you criticize somebody, compare yourself to somebody trying to pull them down or condemn somebody, think about this. You're actually working against God. God will work against that and it won't be in your advantage. It won't be to your favor. You'll be, you'll, it's kind of like inadvertently you have become, in that instance anyway, an enemy of God. You're doing what God is against. Now, turn back to one other story in the book of Genesis, chapter number 9. And this is a very interesting story about, about Noah. And we all know about Noah building the ark. And we think of Noah as a sailor, which is what he was. But after the flood and after they came off the ark and began to live their lives again uh, in a more normal way, Noah became a farmer. And in Genesis chapter 9, we read in verse number 20 what happened. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk. Now think about this. Noah is one of only two people in the Bible where we read that he walked with God. I mean, Noah was a godly man. And yet here we read that he got drunk, which says to me, none of us is perfect. I mean, no, nobody on the planet is perfect except for Christ himself. Noah got drunk, and then he became uncovered. Literally, he became naked in his tent. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And so when, when this son saw his father's nakedness, instead of just covering his father up with a sheet or with a blanket, he couldn't keep it to himself. He ran out of the tent. He found his brothers, only people really around that he could tell this to. And he said, you're never going to believe what dad did. He has gone off and got drunk, and now he's in the tent naked. And so he's trying now to embarrass his father. We don't know why Ham did this. Maybe, you know, maybe Ham, had, he was tired of being Noah's son. All of his life, he's heard Noah, Noah, Noah. Noah built the ark. Noah did all this. And he's thinking, you know, Noah's not, my dad's not perfect. And he's trying maybe to pull Noah down from some of that authority that he has. And we don't know. Verse 23, the other two sons, Shem and Japheth, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And so these two boys... Instead of getting in the, on, in the gossip mill or the slander conversation, what they did, they got a sheet. And Shem put it on his uh, left shoulder, and Japheth put it on his right shoulder, and they're holding that sheet out, and they just walk backwards into the tent. 
and they covered their father's nakedness. What did they do? They covered their father's sin. Now, the interesting thing about this, beginning in verse 24, it says, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Even though he was drunk, he still had some knowledge of what was happening. Then he said, cursed be Canaan. This is the descendants of Ham. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So what did God do as a result of, of this? The son who exposed his sin was cursed. The two boys that covered his sin we're blessed. Now, I want to be clear on this. I think it's understood without saying, but I do want to say it. When I'm talking about covering sins, I'm not talking about covering criminal activity that needs to be taken to a courtroom and decided upon by a judge and a jury. I'm talking about interpersonal relationships in the family, with your friends, with your people you go to school with, with your coworkers, and, and you have such a desire, and it's a natural desire that we all have, to make people think as highly of you as possible, and yet sometimes we do that at the expense of others. Remember this, if you set out to bring other people down and to make them look bad, I'm not saying there's going to be a curse on your life, because it's not for me to say that, and I hope there's not, but I am saying in this case there was a curse on Ham's life, but I can say this, if you set out to cut other people some slack, and to give them the benefit of the doubt, what you're going to find is that there will be a special blessing on your life. You say, yeah, but John, at the workplace, you just don't know what they've said and what they're doing and how they're working behind my back, and, and I just feel like I've just got to kind of get out there and set this record straight. What I'm saying to you today is if you'll just keep walking with God and if you'll just keep being kind and good to people, God eventually will set the record straight better than you ever could. Don't ever make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad.